This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Disappointed to report I am not Travis Cardwell. Sorry if you're disappointed. Uh, and we are not going to be in Luke this morning. Our text is actually going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, so go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Before we dive in, two things. Uh, first of all, um, it is just awesome to hear you sing. I'm just blessed by that. If you've never had a job opportunity, if you're, if you're a back row Baptist, take, take some time some week and come sit in the front row to hear your brothers and sisters sing together because it is a, it is sweet, man. Um, I, am, I am very blessed and privileged to be here to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, every one of your elders love you deeply. I, ho- I hope you know that. Um, we care for you. We pray for you. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm, this is my favorite thing, is to stand before my brothers and sisters and open God's Word. So I'm thankful to be here this morning. Um, let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your grace to us in ways we don't deserve or imagine. Thank you for saving us from sin and death, for forgiving us of our great offense against you, for calling us to be your sons and daughters, for gathering us together in a family and giving us to one another, for giving us your word in which you speak so clearly and and so piercingly into our hearts, uh, and you call us to live before you and live in the world as your people. And thank you for your spirit who strengthens us uh, so that whatever we do that is good and pleasing to you, you know, it is not us, but it is Christ in us. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, that your word would be strong and clear and Jesus would be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So about a week ago, a young man named Aaron Brooks won the NCAA wrestling title for his weight class. And in the post-game interview, in the elation of the moment, he was asked about the importance of his personal faith. And this is what he said. He said, it's everything. Christ's resurrection is everything, not just his life, his death and resurrection. You can only get that through him, the Holy Spirit, only through him. No false prophets, no Muhammad or anyone else, only Jesus Christ himself. Now, as you would expect, the response from social media was immediate and heated. Uh, The NCAA actually took down their social posts Uh, uh, celebrating his victory or celebrating that interview uh, after the response of people on social media. Folks were aghast that a Christian would say something so exclusive and hateful and unloving. Uh, In case you're curious, I agree with Brooks. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4 verse 12 says there is no, there's salvation in no one else. 
but Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This kind of exclusive statement is not considered acceptable or appropriate today. It offends the gods of the postmodern age. This language is not just considered backwards or ignorant, but dangerous. There are those who would say, believe whatever you like within the confines of your home or your church. Live your truth, but don't try to tell other people what to believe. Proselytizing is wrong because it means you're judging other people's journey of faith as, or, or of no faith as being incorrect or incomplete. Don't miss the irony of being judged for judgmentalism. And when we Christians have the audacity to say that we actually believe what this Bible says and that what this Bible says actually has some authority in the lives of others, that's when we go too far. Our faith is seen as the strange relic of a bygone and backwards era. Our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us that in the eyes of the world, this gospel is a foolish message believed by a bunch of nobodies and proclaimed by an unimpressive messenger. And so that's how we'll consider this passage in three parts. That's your outline. A foolish message, a bunch of nobodies, and an unimpressive messenger. We are in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 18 today. So let's read this first, first section of our text. We'll be going from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5. So let's start in verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. This is what the Word of God says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now let's start by noting briefly the immediate context here in Paul's letter in this passage. After his encouraging greeting to the church in Corinth, he calls them saints. Uh, and his greeting of grace and peace to them, he discusses, discusses that there are factions forming among them behind certain teachers. As believers choose teams based on their favorite pastor or evangelist. He mentions that he's glad he himself has baptized so few of them so as not to add to the chaos that has developed. Then he says in verse 17 that he was not called to baptize, that is, not to baptize people to himself as a teacher, but he's called to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In a culture that valued rhetorical flourish, and brilliant arguments. Paul refused to win an, argument, or win an audience through clever speech. As one commentator noted, such speech, such speech can win the mind or the will or the emotions, but cannot save the soul. 
So verse 18 carries on that thought by challenging the Corinthian desire for eloquent teaching. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul indicates that rather than being many groups following various teachers, all of humanity is really divided into two groups. Those who are perishing, who are literally being destroyed, and those who are being saved. As one pastor wrote, everyone is in the process of salvation or destruction. And I have to ask, does it, does it shock your, your sensibilities to put it in such stark terms? It shouldn't. I mean, this is the, the message of the New Testament. There is light and there's darkness. There are sheep and there are goats. There are those who have repented of sin and been born again and, and those who have not. There's no middle ground, no third group of good and well-intentioned people who have not trusted in Jesus. The scriptures are explicit in communicating this reality. There is only one way to have peace with God, and that is through the shed blood of Christ Jesus that covers our sin. My friend, if you have not repented of your sin today and put your full faith in and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. No matter how good you are, no matter how kind or, or friendly or neighborly or, or patriotic you are, if you've not trusted in Jesus alone, you will not be saved. You will be judged guilty for your sin, and you will be condemned to an eternity in hell separated from the love and mercy of God forever. My prayer for you who hear me today is that any one of you who has not yet turned and put your faith in Jesus Christ would do so. That God would give you ears to hear and eyes to see. Because if he does not, this gospel will be nothing but foolishness to you. Now, we should notice that Paul does not initially say that the message of the cross is, folishing, is folly to the perishing and wisdom to the saved. Instead, he says it is the power of God. Now, in Romans 1.16, he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Power that transforms, power that raises the spiritually dead heart. D.A. Carson notes that no public philosophy, no commonly accepted wisdom can have enduring significance if its center is not the cross. Christianity isn't just another philosophical or moral system, in other words. It has the power to bring dead hearts to life. Now, in verse 19, Paul seems to be loosely quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Specifically, Isaiah 29, verse 14, in which God says that because his people are hypocritical in their ways, he will thwart their wisdom and discernment. Here, Paul applies that to the wisdom of the world. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, the words here for destroy and thwart point to this worldly understanding being taken away and rejected or set aside. In a culture that elevates human wisdom, and philosophy. God breaks down their ability to understand the world rightly. 
In Romans 1, part of the judgment of God upon man for our rebellion is that we are given over to a debased mind, a mind that is corrupted by sin and unable to see the world rightly. God doesn't just make worldly wisdom appear foolish. He reduces it to folly. Paul then asks another series of rhetorical questions in verse 20, like he did in the previous passage. In verse 20, he asks another series of questions. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, the wise man here is the philosopher, scholar of the day. The scribe is likely pointing to the teachers of the Mosaic law who yet still reject Jesus as Messiah. The debater is the master of rhetoric, the sophist who plays at public debate and gathers paying students to himself. The greatest minds of this age are shown to be fools in the light of the incomprehensible wisdom of God. How has God done this? By undermining the very thing on which they have built their hope. In verse 21, Paul says that God, in his wisdom, did not allow himself to be fully grasped by the power of man's intellect, because that would make human intelligence or wisdom the work that we do in order to make our way to God. But instead, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is an interesting phrase. Some, some translations render this the foolishness of preaching. If you have a King James Bible or grew up on that, it, this phrase is the foolishness of preaching. But it's not just referring to the act of preaching itself, but what we preach that is foolishness. And it is foolish from a worldly perspective. What, so what is it? What is this foolish message? It's that man cannot approach God by good works but that God condescended to come to us and do us good. And the only way to be good enough is to realize that by our efforts, we will never be good enough. That the way up is down, and the greatest among us must be the servant of all. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That eternal life is found through dying to yourself. That victory comes through sacrifice and surrender. This message is madness to the world we live in. And even to our own natural assumptions. This doesn't naturally make sense. It's completely upside down. But that's the beauty of it. The gospel reveals that it's the world that's upside down. And this is the only thing that's right side up in it. When we are born again and transformed by the message of the cross, we are finally turned right side up. Now Paul goes on to describe other reactions to this message. In verse 22, he says that the Jews demand signs. We see this throughout Jesus' ministry, don't we? In fact, uh, if you want to hold your finger there and turn to Matthew 12, or else I can just read it to you. Matthew 12, verse 38. One such interaction. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up to the judgment and with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The Jewish leaders weren't asking Jesus in good faith for a sign to confirm his identity. They, he had already done enough. They were simply looking for a way to test him, to try to find him lacking. I would note as a side note that Jesus clearly considers Jonah to be a real person in that case. That's just, that's for free. Um, Paul also writes in verse 22 that Jews, Jews demand signs, but Greeks seek wisdom. We see this in, in Acts 17, actually, uh, as Paul is in Athens uh, speaking there at the Areopagus. And uh, in Acts 17, verse 21, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds like YouTube. It's like, oh, that's new. Something new. Here's some new idea. New thing. They wanted their ears to be tickled and their interest to be piqued by novelty, by clever arguments by eloquent speech. The message of the cross subverts these expectations. And it still does, even now, 2,000 years later. Faithful Christian churches preach the same gospel that Paul did. They don't innovate the message. The core message of the gospel doesn't evolve with the times. It remains the same message delivered once for all to the saints. And by God's grace, every man that stands behind this pulpit and preaches will proclaim this same gospel without apology until the day King Jesus returns. Every man that stands behind this pulpit will do so by God's grace. So will everyone hear this gospel message as good news? Surely not. Paul says in verse 23 that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Well, why is the crucifixion a stumbling block? Well, it's because the Jews expected their promised Messiah to be a king on a stallion driving out foreign oppressors and setting up a new golden age for the kingdom of Israel. And instead, Jesus came as a laborer and an itinerant rabbi riding the colt of a donkey who was executed by the Romans in disgrace, seemingly under God's curse as he was hanged on a tree. Jesus became a stumbling block to those who were not given eyes to see and ears to hear. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 8, uh, starting in verse 11. Isaiah 8, starting in verse 11. Prophet writes, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense 
and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall, snared, be, they shall be snared and be taken. Peter then applies that same message, that passage to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But not only is Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, it is folly to Gentiles, literally madness. The idea of a God becoming human in order to humble himself to the point of submitting to death on a cross was literally insane to Gentile ears. That's why as soon as Paul started talking about how Jesus was, was killed and resurrected, they were like, that's crazy. No, get out of here. We don't want, we don't want to hear this. Crucifixion was a brutal and inhuman torture, inhumane torture, such that under Roman rule, it was never applied to Roman citizens, but only to slaves and foreign criminals and barbarians. So to worship a God who died on a cross was wildly offensive to Gentile sensibilities. And Christians were increasingly seen as disturbing and uncivilized because of it. Some things don't change. But to those who are called, Paul says, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See again how God, how Paul points to the sovereign grace of God in calling these saints to himself, both from Israel and from the rest of the world, represented here by the word Greeks. God in his mercy calls a people to himself and gives them understanding to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is both power and wisdom from God. Paul rightly says that what the world perceives as weakness and foolishness of God in the message of the cross is wiser and more powerful than anything the world of men could muster. Christian, can I challenge you here to stop and consider if this message of the cross demonstrates itself to be wisdom and power in your life. This gospel we proclaim is not just good information or a philosophical system or a moral guide. This good news of Jesus Christ is real power that frees us from slavery to sin. This life and death of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures gives us wisdom and understanding to shape our lives in submission to God's will and God's plan. If you're not experiencing the power and wisdom of God at work on your life, I would urge you to turn your eyes to Jesus. Really focus on him. Like the song says, look full at his wonderful face. Spend time in the scriptures and ask God to help you see Jesus Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work in your mind and your heart to give you power over sin and wisdom for righteous living. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says that God's will for you is your sanctification and your holiness. So God is pleased to answer that kind of prayer. Now, as we continue in 1 Corinthians 1, we see that not only does Paul proclaim what is considered to be a foolish message, but he proclaims it to a bunch of nobodies. And so that's our second point. Start reading in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul reminds the Corinthian church that they aren't the varsity squad, generally, from the world's perspective anyway. While some may be impressive, Paul says that most of the saints who were called by God were ordinary folks, not great orators, not influential, not wealthy. They were of little account in a culture that valued intellectual achievement and social climbing. And not much has changed. The world still loves what it loves. The young, the beautiful, the rich, the powerful, the impressive, the trending. And while there's nothing wrong with being any of those things in and of themselves, Paul makes it clear that the calling of a Christian is not based on what valuable qualities he or she brings to the table. God is not looking to get this or that celebrity or influencer on his team so he can finally start getting a foothold in the culture. How did the church grow from the beginning? It was a group that included fishermen, low-level government employees, women who at that time had very little social standing, folks from small towns and villages, sojourners, slaves. There was the occasional doctor or lawyer, but the first century church was mostly made up of regular folks who were gripped by a gospel that turned them right-side up in an upside-down culture. And this was God's plan all along. To demonstrate that it isn't power or privilege or place that gains you access into God's kingdom. Look at verse 27 and 28 again. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The true God takes what the gods of this world would treat as contemptible. The lowly, the unimpressive, things that are not, literally no one, nobody's. And uses people like this to dishonor and humiliate the world's system of power and prestige. Matthew Henry writes that he has chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the base and despicable things of the world, men of mean birth, of low rank, of no liberal education, to be the preachers of the gospel and the planters of the church. So what's God's goal in this? It's his own glory. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses the ordinary faithful Christian to accomplish his work of calling a people to himself and displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, as Ephesians 3.10 says. So that all we have to boast in it's what the Lord has done for us. Because we, don't have, because we don't bring anything to the table that he hasn't already given us himself, we can't take credit for the miraculous work that he does in and through us. 
So Jesus becomes to us wisdom from God and righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. He is our everything and we are his exceedingly grateful people. Not I, but Christ in me. Here are the words of Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. This is the verse that Paul's alluding to here. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God has called a group of ordinary folks, folks whom the world would pass over as nobodies, so that we might delight in knowing him. And so that it is God's name that is glorified through his church. Before we move on, consider this a moment longer. God isn't waiting for a celebrity or a brilliant orator to come to faith so that he can build his church. Of course, we know that. But still, we have thoughts, don't we? Oh, if only this athlete or that movie star or that one social media influencer would get saved. Wouldn't that be amazing? Y'all, anytime anyone gets born again, it's a miracle. God doesn't need celebrities to build his kingdom. He doesn't. He prefers to use building inspectors, school teachers, family doctors, homemakers and students and restaurant waitstaff and retirees and widows and, and, and day laborers and immigrants, even tax lawyers. We need to resist the temptation to put our hope in getting some influential, influential person on God's team. God doesn't need a key member of the community here in Southwest Houston to be born again in order to use this church to call sinners to repentance and faith. Instead, God delights in using us, the nobodies of his kingdom, who seek to please our king through faithful obedience to his commands. Paul's told us so far about the foolish message. He's told us about a message being preached to the group of nobodies, but he doesn't leave himself out of the equation. This is our last point here, the unimpressive messenger. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul describes his first visit to Corinth and how his approach was not that of the culture maker or the philosophical guru. He didn't use lofty speech or wisdom like the, the Greek debaters. This doesn't mean that Paul was un- Try that again. This doesn't mean that Paul was unintelligent. Far from it. He was well-trained in the Old Testament scriptures as a former Pharisee and a student of Gamaliel. He understood how to tailor a message to his audience, whether speaking in a Jewish synagogue or a Greek public square. He was quick-witted, and he was well-read. So when we see Paul's description here, we shouldn't read that as Paul being unprepared 
or unintelligent. And we certainly can't read this and infer that those who are given the responsibility of preaching the word as being lax in their preparation or study. Rather, Paul is indicating that his goal wasn't to impress and that the Lord used Paul in spite of his own weakness and misgivings. Paul decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As one commentator noted, that seems to be like Jesus Christ his, himself and his identity and him crucified, what he did, his saving work. So Paul's like, I don't want to know anything else. I don't want to proclaim anything else but who Jesus is and what Jesus did. There's nothing that would distract Paul from this singular message because he knew that nothing he could conjure up rhetorically would ever have the power of the message of the cross. He refused to use clever speech or argument to manipulate or mislead his hearers. Paul intentionally preached in a way that was clear and simple and easy to grasp so that anyone who was given ears to hear could hear it. Paul himself was unimpressive. From the context clues of his letters, we might assume that he wasn't attractive in appearance or manner, that he perhaps was bothered by physical ailments that would make him seem less dynamic or charismatic. Those who criticized his ministry would argue that the power of his letters wasn't matched by his manner. He, he expresses this himself in 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Quoting his critics. Yet Paul argues in our passage that his manner of speaking and his physical weakness and limitations only prove that the power is from God and not from him. Now the word demonstration here in verse 4 is a term that can be applied to evidence given in court as proof. Paul says that his nobodiness was all the more evidence that the work that God did through him was all of grace. Even when he preached before them with fear and trembling, not because he feared the opposition of man, but because he felt the awesome weight of such an all-important message, yet God was able to work through Paul's weakness to show himself strong. Paul limited himself to the message of the cross of Christ so that there would be no question that in the, in the excuse me no question that the transformed lives of the Corinthian believers were the result of the power of God at work in them. That way their hope is not ultimately in Paul but in Jesus. The same should be true of all of us. As we seek to proclaim this same message Paul did, our goal is not to make our message or our presentation persuasive and appealing to the culture around us by human means, lest we end up changing the message to please the masses. If we are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the culture will always reject our message as backward and outdated. Most will dismiss or even actively oppose the message we proclaim. This is normal. This is normal. To the perishing, the gospel is frustrating, stupid, insane, and offensive. If we remain faithful, the world will undoubtedly call us all those terrible names that have ist and phobe in them because we dare to tell them what the Bible says. So the world being labeled that way is like the most frightening thing they can imagine. Not us. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. Do not fear what man can do to the body or even the online reputation. 
Instead, fear and revere the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. In all your speech, proclaim the good news boldly, lovingly, and plainly. Seek to be clear, consistent, and faithful to the word. Don't shy away from saying, I believe what the Bible says is true. The world will rage at our message and call it foolish. Let them. The world will mock us and call us nobodies. Hey, they're right. The world will continue to attack and deny the truth and authority of the scriptures and the exclusive message of salvation through Jesus alone. Dear ones, stand firm. Stand firm and cling to that truth because it's the very thing that keeps us right side up in an upside down world. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Let's pray. Father God, we have nothing in and of ourselves that is great or mighty or powerful. Our meager resources and human abilities fall short. Though we were given the tongues of men and angels, we cannot persuade one soul to turn from death to life without your Spirit doing the work. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you will make them strong. They will resist the devil. That they will stand firm and believe what the Bible says and proclaim without embarrassment or shock, I'm a Christian. I believe this Bible is true. I believe that Jesus is the only way to God and that no one can come to God except through him and that all people will one day face God in judgment and only those who have trusted in Jesus will be saved. Lord, help us to proclaim the good news that there is hope There is a chance even now to be reconciled to God for those who are outside of Christ. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know Jesus, who have hesitated, who have heard these words and have hesitated in giving their hearts to Jesus Christ and following in obedience and repentance and faith and calling on him as Lord. For whatever reason, But Lord, I pray that you would grip them with this reality. They are perishing without Jesus. But there is hope. There is hope for them still. I pray that you would grip them with that reality. That you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see. That you would give them faith. That you would bring them from death to life. So that they may take a breath of fresh air and say, yes. Jesus is Lord. Oh Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for our neighbors, the people around us, the people on the street and at the street corners and all these souls that we see who are all going somewhere forever. Lord, I pray you would mobilize this beautiful band of nobodies to be an army of soldiers, of messengers, to proclaim good news to the dying.
Lord, I pray you would make me faithful to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.